Once upon a time, there were four little rabbits. How old are you, Johnny? She asked. Sixteen. We few, we happy few, we band of brothers. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. A wise old king once said, Of the making of books, there is no end. How true today. Of the overabundance of writing published each year, what's worth reading? The answer is simple. Read only the best. Come join the discussion on Just the Best Literature. Well, hello again, everyone. Thanks for listening in today. Again, I have no comments, but I know they're going to come flooding in uh, any day now. That sounds like a song. Any day now. That's an old, that's a famous song. Well, listen, on our last podcast, Grant Turgeon and I finished the program with a discussion of chapters 26 and 27, both chapters titled Knights and Squires. <laughs> so so uh, you'll have to listen to that podcast. It's really great. Uh, only Melville can get away with writing two consecutive chapters with the same title. All right, but you're going to have to listen to hear what it's all about. Now, for today's podcast, Grant and I want to begin our discussion with chapter 28, and uh, we'll see if we can't get through chapter 31. We'll have to see. These are really small. I mean, the the chapter 28 is probably the longest. But uh, chapter uh, 28 is called Ahab, (laughs) finally. And uh, I think the, the, the thing you need to know about this chapter is Melville finally lets us see the mysterious Captain Ahab. And, of course, there's one other thing we're going to have to talk about. <laughs> it's, it's connected to Ahab. And Grant knows where I'm going with this. But, uh, but essentially, as this chapter opens, is Ishmael is still looking for Ahab several days after they left Nantucket. <laughs> he, still has not, he still has not seen Ahab. And, and, uh, but what he does see is, is he does see that the three mates are going in and out of the of his cabin and uh, they are the ones running the ship the three mates so we we talked about them in the last program so so uh, all of you people out there you can see the that we're actually giving you it in the right section so now you know who the three mates are and you should be able to write me and tell me I know who the three mates are without even reading the book right so so anyway um, it, it, it's it's really funny how Melville uses um, Ishmael. So, so I think for, for the audience out there, this is what I teach in my class, that when you're reading Ishmael, you're reading Melville. You're reading Melville's thoughts. I mean, that's just the way it, that's just the way it is. So uh, uh, anyway, um, Ishmael, I think he gets a little, he gets a little upset that, that you know, he uh, says these mates can go in and out, and that he calls it, that, that um, uh, Ahab is in his sacred retreat. <laughs> you know, so, but notice it's sacred retreat. So the, again, there's a spiritual element going on in this book, and you've got to pick up all the little cues for it. But, but uh, uh, Ishmael is kind of getting sarcastic. He's like, okay, I'm getting tired of this. I want to see you know, who this guy is. And then in the very first paragraph, he says, he talks about him, and he says, yes, their supreme lord and dictator was there. <laughs> in the sacred retreat and uh it says though hitherto unseen by any eyes not permitted to penetrate into the now sacred retreat of the cabin and so so anyway he, he the very next paragraph he says every time i ascended to the deck from my watches below 
I instantly gazed aft to mark if any strange face were visible. He doesn't even know what Ahab looks like. He doesn't even, I mean, he could be there all the time and he wouldn't know. Well, he would if he, he with any legless guy. Guy with one leg. Would, <laughs> right. Yeah, okay. Would probably give it away. But, but he said, um, he said, this is really, really starting to bug him. He, he said, uh, uh, now in the seclusion of the sea became, it became almost a perturbation. He was perturbed by this. He says, this was strangely heightened at times by the ragged Elijah's diabolical coherences uninvitedly recurring to me. <laughs> so, so guess who came back in this chapter? <laughs> Elijah returns. <laughs> Elijah <Yeah>. returns. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I, I think, uh, um, you know, I think it really did freak out Ishmael. You know, he's, he's still freaked out by the prophet of the wharves. <laughs> And of course, we know what he did to them. You know, he, he uh, you know, Elijah, you know, talked about Ahab as being old thunder, you know, and so, so he put all these doubts in their minds. And uh, of course, you know, he threw all these prophecies at Queequeg and, uh, and Ishmael as he boarded the ship and they'd say, morning to you. <laughs> Melville builds so much suspense before we ever get to see Ahab, Ishmael boards the Pequod. He signs a contract to be a, a sailor on the ship. Uh, he sees them preparing the ship for days, and he's he's waiting for them to leave. And then finally, days into the voyage, he still hasn't even seen Ahab. So for us readers, it's brilliant, but it's frustrating at the same time because we keep hearing about Ahab from all of the men who are organizing the ship. We hear it from the prophet Elijah in the streets a couple of times, and yet we still haven't even seen him until well over 100 pages in. Yeah, morning to you. <laughs> Elijah just was purposely infuriating Ishmael yeah. both times they met. Oh, just just totally, totally. Um, you know, I, I, I could see it. I, I meant to bring this up last time. Um, but can you imagine how long, I mean, both Grant and I write for church publications. And, you know, sometimes I can spend half a day on one paragraph. Can you imagine how many times did Melville spend on these paragraphs? How much time did he invest in them? And then to think it all through, I mean, this is a massive book. It's not, it's like a compendium. <laughs> it's like you read an encyclopedia almost. And so, uh, but, but, uh, he really ties everything together in a great way. You know, it's like he, he doesn't, I think he, he kind of liked the whole idea of Elijah. <laughs> he, he keeps bringing it back as, as uh, you know, as much as he can. Well, yeah, there's Ahab and Elijah, which, like you've been pointing out, is a spiritual parallel. So yeah. that's from a biblical story. So obviously he brings in the Bible, he brings in, Shakespeare, like you've talked about before, a lot of deep thought, clearly. Just the way he describes characters, we, when we try to describe characters, we tend to say, oh, he has brown hair and green eyes, and he's tall. But the way that Melville describes characters, he describes them, even just their looks, for a page and a half. Yeah. And it's just so vivid in our minds when we read that. Yeah. So, so uh, I, I think it's just... 
amazing. Now, on the, if you just flip over to page 134, um, you know, Ishmael does spend his time really praising the mates. He says, the three better, more likely sea officers and men, each in his own different way, could not readily be found. And there they were, every one of them, Americans, a Nantucketer, a vineyarder, a Cape man. And so they were actually leading the ship. So in some ways, they were, they were giving him confidence. You know, but then, then all of a sudden, <laughs> you know, they, uh, Ahab shows up. And I, I think it's interesting, you know, how he does, that he does show up. He said, um, this is again on page 134, it says, One of those less lowering but still gray and gloomy enough mornings of the transition. And so, so they're, transi- they're, they're transitioning from, let's say, the northern Atlantic Ocean. Now they're, they're, they're going more into the tropics. And so, you know, I, I could see there would be different, different weather and different skies and He said, but it was one of these less lowering but still gray and gloomy enough mornings of the transition when with a fair wind the ship was rushing through the water with a vindictive sort of leaping and melancholy rapidity that as I mounted to the deck at the call of the forenoon watch, as soon as I leveled my glance towards the taffrail, foreboding shivers ran over me. Reality outran apprehension. Captain Ahab stood upon his quarter deck. (laughs) There he so, is. So there he is, finally, and it's a gloomy, it's a gloomy gray morning, and and uh, you know here Ishmael just complained over and over again. I want to see Ahab. I want to see Ahab, and he sees him. What happens to him? His foreboding shivers ran over me. It's like he becomes Elijah. <laughs> it, it's a terrifying sight for Ishmael to see. Ahab there after all this time where he's heard sort of bad things, also good things, but enough to make him worry quite a bit. Now he's actually seeing Ahab and it's like he's made out of solid bronze and, <laughs> yeah. and his his brow sticks out from his just hard frown. Like clouds. You know, it's like clouds <laughs> stuck on a mountain, you know, they keep building up against a mountain. He never smiles yeah. and he hardly ever talks. And he yeah. just stands there, yeah. or he paces at night <laughs> sometimes. Yeah. yeah, well, we have to get into that because that's really <laughs> funny. <laughs> so, so anyway, um, uh, just to build on what, what Grant was saying there, some of the things that, um, uh, and I wanted to ask you, Grant, what do you think about that statement, this statement? He said, he looked like a man cut away from the stake. And then you, you already brought up that he was built like a bronze statue. So what do you think it means that he was cut away from the stake? Um, I think it's, it's talking about that, that mark on him. So he draws that analogy of an electrocuted or a, a tree struck by lightning. So maybe he's, he's the tree and then the mark going down his head and into, down his neck into his clothes is like the the lightning strike, but I wasn't totally sure about that. Yeah, I know um, one of my students just, they thought it was uh, it's like cutting Christ away from the stake after he was dead. Right, And yeah. so, so I don't know if that's true, but with some of the spiritual overtones in the book, you just wonder. That did quickly pass through my head if there was a Christ reference there, Yeah, but I didn't really know. Yeah, but it's like, um, as we go down here, I think it's going to add 
to to that question. It says, uh, but, but I think it was it was great that he was built like a bronze statue. <laughs> but uh, and then he says, he, but he had a scorched face, meaning he was struck by lightning. That's that's on the same page. And then it says, um, uh, what, what's revealed there is that an old gay head Indian said he was branded this way at age forty, and uh, you know. Um, that not everybody is necessarily agreeing with that, but um, you know it's it, it is it is kind of interesting. He said that whether the mark was born with him or whether it was the scar left by some desperate wound, no one can certainly say. By some tacit consent, a consent through the voyage, little or no allusion was made to it, especially by the mates. He goes on to say, once Tastigo's senior, an old gay head Indian among the crew superstitiously said that that, okay, I, I just talked about that, um, that he was full 40 years old when it happened. But it says, not in, not in the fury of any mortal fray, but in an elemental strife at the sea. So, so it could be that that happened when he was, you know, when they were shipping. But it, he goes on to say um, that... Uh, he said, yet this wild hint seemed inferentially negative by what a gray Max Mannix man insinuated, an old sepulchral man who, had, who, having never before sailed out of Nantucket, had ever laid his, hide up, his eye upon wild Ahab. So now he's being called wild Ahab. And so they, they, uh, Melville keeps changing the, the name of him. But if, if you notice, as we go down through that, those... Uh, the page, page 135 now, it says, so powerfully did the whole grim aspect of Ahab affect me and the livid brand which streaked it that for the first few moments I hardly noted that not a little of this overbearing grimness was owing to the barbaric white leg upon which he partly stood. So, so he's got this grim aspect in his face, but then he finally sees the white leg and he calls it barbaric, you know, the barbaric, <laughs> barbaric white leg. And it had previously come to me that this ivory leg had been fashioned from the polished bone of the sperm whale's jaw. Sperm whale's jaw. I, he was dismasted off Japan, said the gay head Indian once. But like his dismasted craft, he shipped another mast without coming home for it. He has a quiver of them. So I think that means he's got a bunch of legs. <laughs> yeah, so... so uh, it goes on to say there that, that Ishmael said, I was struck with the singular posture he maintained. So this guy, is uh, he's got a lot of strength. Right. Yeah. yeah. So so it's uh, it, it, it's it's kind of amazing. Um, yeah, just like the, the look of him is intimidating to Ishmael. And we're going to see that he's intimidating in other ways, too, not, <laughs> not just his looks. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> But but I do I do think it's it's um, let's see where is this? It's it's down at the bottom of this, of this page, still page one thirty four, and I think about this with my previous question. It says uh, not a word he spoke, nor did his officers say aught to him, though by all their minutest gestures and expressions they plainly showed the uneasy if not painful consciousness of being under a troubled mastered master eye. So, you know, he, he really had power over these men, and uh, they believed he was troubled. But notice, and not only that, but Moody, Strook, and Ahab stood before them 
with a crucifixion in his face. So now put that together with the stake. What do you think? Exactly. Yeah, that's yeah. where I really started to wonder if that's what he was talking yeah. about. Yeah, we're, we might have to look that up because I, I, uh, there's a lot of symbolism, but I don't think we should take it too far. Right. And that's where <laughs> I think some of our students can just take it too far. <laughs> and I have to kind of keep them under control. <laughs> so so uh, uh, anyway, but, but the fact that he used the word crucifixion, now I know that uh, in Old Man of the Sea, Hemingway does the same thing. There's like the blood and, you know, when he's rowing and, you know, trying to hold the, the fish against the, you know, so... So I think there's some crucifixion things in there as well. So, uh, uh, but, but it's interesting now. Uh, there's a big change at the bottom of page 35. And it says, uh, from that day forward, even though it was gray and gloomy, the, the further they got into the tropics, they got to see Ahab even more. It says, ere long from his first visit in the air, he withdrew into his cabin. But after that morning, he was every day visible to the crew, either standing in his pivot hole or seated upon an ivory stool he had, or heavily walking the deck. And uh, so, so there's, there's another one. He had this, he was seated on an ivory stool. So, you know, remember now he's named Ahab after King Ahab. And so, so I think the image is now gonna start changing to where he's like a king. You know, and he's got his knights and his squires and they're going off to their crusade to kill Moby, you know. Right. So I think it's just, it's you just have to put put all that together. Uh, and and I like I liked how he has that that pivot hole, so so a, a hole to to put his peg peg leg while he's standing. Yeah. <laughs> so, so hopefully, he probably has a, a little bit of balance is, issues, and it helps that he could have a hole to put his leg while he's standing on the deck. Yeah, yeah, but give him that that aspect of just being really strong, mm. you know, and just really standing firm. You know, it, it's uh, it's like even if you have, I don't care if you have the best tennis shoes in the world, if you're on a wet surface, right. <laughs> you're gonna slip, you know, so. <laughs> so uh, and anyway, it goes on, it says, um, but the Peacock was only making a passage now, not regularly cruising, nearly all welling preparations needing the supervision uh, supervision the mates were fully competent in so that there was little or nothing out of himself to employ or excite Ahab now and thus chase away for for that one interval the clouds that layer upon layer were piled upon his brow as ever clouds chose the loftiest peaks to pile themselves upon so there's a lot going on in this guy's brain he's, right and Ishmael said he's not really doing much yet he's just thinking and he's brooding yeah. But he's letting the mates under him do all the work do right now. Do all the work, yeah. And it's probably that's probably the way it should be. Yeah. Uh, it says, never, nevertheless, ere long, the warm, warbling pervasiveness of the pleasant holiday weather we came to seemed gradually to charm him from his mood. For as when the red checkered dancing girls, April and May, <laughs> so he's now comp- comparing the warm weather to these dancing girls. A trip home to the wintry, misanthropic woods, even the barest, ruggest, most thundercloven old oak will at least send forth some few green sprouts. <laughs> so, so he is comparing him to a tree. And now it's like spring and he's sprouting. You know, he's sprouting, he's sprouting leaves. So, 
So uh, more than once did he put forth the faint blossom of a look which in any other man would have soon flowered out in a smile. But not Ahab. Not Ahab. He almost smiled. Yeah, you almost. You could see it, maybe see it in his eyes, in the twitch of his face, but other than that, he didn't actually <laughs> smile. He's not smiling, no. <laughs> All right, so let's, we can slip on to chapter 29. This is great. Now, uh, for all of you readers out there, chapter 29 is where you really begin to see that Melville is experimenting with plays. And uh, so the title, Enter Ahab, to him, Stubb. So that is like a stage direction in a play. <laughs> That's the title of a chapter. It's the title of the chapter. And so, so he's probably, he's been reading so much Shakespeare at this time that he's confused about what he's doing. <laughs> <laughs> so, so uh, anyway, uh, I still think, um, you know, to me, uh, being a writer, you know, having been in, involved with um, literature all my adult life, practically, um, you know, I just, to me, I'm impressed by this, that you have enough courage to do it, you know, but it did almost make him go broke. But now that you got all the the intellectuals today, they're, <laughs> this book is still... It's still really popular today. So now, now the book's making money, and I don't know where the money's going for the family. Good point. So, yeah. Anyway, um, he, he says, uh, beginning of the chapter, some days elapsed, and, ice, and icebergs all astern, meaning they're at the back of the ship. The Pequod now went rolling through the bright Quinto Spring, which at sea almost perpetually reigns on the threshold of the eternal August of the Tropic. So you know what that means. It's going to get really hot now, <laughs> so that spring's going to go really fast. <laughs> so it's going to get really hot, and what does hot do to people? Makes them grumpy. It makes them grumpy. It fries your brains, you know. So, uh, so anyway, it says the warm, cool, the warmly cool, clear rigging, perfumed, overflowing redundant days were as crystal goblets of Persian sherbet, heaped up, flaked up with rose water snow. So this guy. What was he eating when he was writing this? <laughs> the, st- the starred and stately knights seemed haughty dames in jeweled velvets, nursing at home in lonely pride the memory of their absent conquering earls. So, so he's now thinking about all the wives at home. So there's, it's great writing, people. And I hope you're really enjoying it. It says, for sleeping man, t'was hard to choose between such winsome days and such seducing nights. And so, so es- essentially... What he's saying is that all these things began to work on Ahab's texture. So sometimes he could be nice, sometimes he just was distant. You know? So outside of their shift on duty, it was like, would you rather sleep to avoid the sad night or the the hot day is what it, what it sounds like. Right, so, right. so neither one of them is particularly desirable. No. So Ahab's going to start showing that he doesn't like his environment very much right now. <laughs> no. And the, the, the thing that's, that's uh, going on is the very next chapter, I'm not chapter, the next paragraph is old age. This, this is really deep thinking by Melville. Old age is always wakeful, as if the longer link with life, the less man has to do with aught that looks like death. Among sea commanders, the old graybeards will oftenest leave their berths to visit the night cloak decked. It was so with Ahab. I didn't mean to say deck. I, I put decked. night cloaked and I said decked. I mean deck. 
Anyway, it was so with Ahab, only that now of late he seemed so much to live in the open air that truly speaking, his visits were more to the cabin than from the cabin to the planks. So, so what's he doing? He's thinking about death. He, he's getting older. He knows he's going to have to die sometime. But because it's so nice now, he can't sleep. So he's up all night. And a lot of older people go through that. They can't sleep, you know, or they sleep very, very, uh, you know, um, sketchily. He doesn't want to be in his cabin, and here's his reason. It feels like going down into one's tomb, he would mutter to himself, for an old captain like me to be descending this narrow scuttle to go to my grave-dug berth. And so now this guy, this guy thinks, uh, thinks pretty deeply. But uh, so what does he spend? It's like uh, the next page over says he spends almost 24 hours walking the deck. So who's underneath the deck? It's all the shipmates, and they're trying to sleep, and all they can hear is. <laughs> <laughs> Can you, you know, they're case keeping them awake. <laughs> so, so who is the only one brave enough to come up and confront him? Stub. Stub. And he sure would regret it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So you want to talk about it. It's funny. <laughs> well, Stub tried to nicely point out that there were men sleeping below <laughs> and the peg leg was especially <laughs> keeping them awake so Ahab did not really like being told this I thought maybe at times he was more mindful and didn't always pace all night long right. but there there were times where maybe he couldn't help himself because he was so deep in thought and he had right. so many problems in his mind that he would just start pacing maybe involuntarily a little bit yeah. so Stubb tries to point this out it doesn't doesn't seem like Stubb does it very rudely at all, and yet Ahab absolutely goes off at yeah, Stubb. That's the, and I I think you're right. I think Stubb was just trying to point it out. It says because the other men, if they have night duty, if they have to pull ropes or do everything, they do it really quietly. Mm-hmm. But it seems like Ahab is thinking, I'm the captain. I can do what I want. Well, he has that. It that gave leg that appearance, yeah, with a, with a hard point on the end. So where other men would be able to tiptoe around a little bit more easily, Ahab needs to stay still while he's on the deck, or everyone's yeah. going to be awake the whole night. Yeah. So it's it's really funny. Um, Stubb says to him, "I mean, this is what way Ahab answers him. He says, am I a cannonball, Stubb?' <laughs> said Ahab, that you would wad me that fashion." But go thy ways, I had forgot, below to thy nightly grave, where such as you sleep between shrouds, to use you to the filling one at last. Down, dog, and kennel. <laughs> so, so the captain says, go back to your kennel, you dog. <laughs> right. And, then, and, and then, Stubbs doesn't let it go. Oh. Stubb could have ended it right there, yeah. but he said, I don't like it when you talk to me like that. Yeah. And now they're going back and forth. Yeah, so... so uh, uh, Stubb was speechless <laughs> just for a moment. <laughs> and then he says, I'm not used to be spoken to that way, sir. I do but less than half 
half like it, sir. And, and uh, of course, Ahab says avast means stop talking. You know, he says, no, sir, not yet, said Stop and Bolden. I will not tamely be called a dog, sir. And he says, then be called ten times a donkey and a mule and an ass and be gone or I'll clear the world of thee. And so, so I mean, Stubb took him on and Ahab put him down. And, and so, so uh, Stubb still doesn't like it. And, uh, of course, then the whole next page, page 139, is, is uh, Stubb is just come unglued. <laughs> <laughs> it bothers him for the whole rest of the night, night yeah. even in his dreams. Yeah, I, I had never served... So, so before, without giving a hard blow for it, muttered Stubb, as he found himself descending the cabin scuttle. It's very queer. Stop, Stubb, somehow now. I don't well know whether to go back and strike him, or was that down coming up in me? But it would be, uh, or, or he said, I don't know whether to get down on my knees and pray for him. So he's talking to himself all the way all the way back to his, his birth. And Stubbs says, I've never prayed before, but now I, f- I feel compelled to, to possibly either hit Ahab or pray for him, even though I've never prayed before. Isn't that right? Quite a conflict in his mind. Yeah. He said, he ain't in his bed now either. More than three hours out of the 24 and he don't sleep then. Didn't that doughboy, the steward, tell me that of a morning he always finds the old man's hammock clothes all rumpled and tumbled and the sheets down at the foot and the coverlet almost tied into knots, and the pillow was sort of frightful hot as though a baked brick had been on it. <laughs> a hot old man. I guess he's got what some folks ashore call a conscience. It's a kind of tick-dolly row, they say, worse nor a toothache. He says, well, well, I don't know what it is, but the Lord keep me from catching it. He's full of riddles. I wonder what he goes into after the hold for every night. As Doughboy tells me, he suspects what that's for. I would like to know. So now, th- this is where Melville decides to, to reveal the other characters that ran on the ship. They've never been, a, they've never been identified, but they're there. Mm. They're in this stockroom. So that's what's going on with that. He said, uh, who's made appointments with him in the hold? Ain't that queer now? But there's no telling. It's the old game. Here goes for a snooze. Here he goes for a snooze. It's worth a fellow's while to be born in the world, if only to fall right asleep. And now I think of it, it's about the first thing babies do, and that's sort of queer, too. He said, but all things are queer, come to think of them. But that's against my principles. Think not is my 11th commandment. <laughs> and sleep when you can is my 12th. <laughs> so that's, that's stub, you know. So... So anyway, he goes on to think, he said, he called me 10 times a donkey and piled a lot of jackasses on top of that. He might as well have kicked me and done it. Maybe he did kick me, and I didn't observe it. I was so taken aback by his brow, somehow, it flashed like a beached bone. And so, so anyway, uh, we're going to have to end on, on that note. So uh, hopefully that'll get you interested out there and uh, continue to reading. So... That's all the time we have for today's program. On our next program, Grant and I will begin discussing chapter 30 and 31. They are really exciting chapters. So uh, you can buy Moby Dick on Amazon.com. You may be also able to find a good used copy at abebooks.com. You may also be able to find a copy in your local bookstore. And, of course, you can also check your local library. Now, please write me any comments you may have to jbl at pcog.org. 
You can also follow JBL on Twitter at JBLiterature1. You can also follow JBL on Facebook. Simply search for just the best literature. So, until next time, keep reading. You've been listening to Just the Best Literature on Trumpet Radio, 101.3 KPCG. Streaming online at kpcg.fm and thetrumpet.com.